Well, good morning. Welcome to the Tabernacle. It's fun to say today that we're uh, officially one church in three locations, Buckley, Manistee, and Cadillac. So that's pretty exciting, yeah. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, um, my phone was blowing up between the services because uh, we chose to take the humble route in Cadillac and just have one service and just see what would happen. And so I thought I'd share with you uh, just a little report. In our last service, we actually had the middle section where we had everybody stand and wave back at the camera and we acted like really stupid, but it was fun, right, you know? Uh, We're not gonna ask you here in Buckley to do that, and of course in Manistee, but the reports were that it was standing room only, Uh, they had to put seats in the lobby, and people were parked on the street. So it was pretty awesome, it was pretty awesome. That's something to celebrate. And that's a result of a lot of uh, actions and reactions, actions and consequences, hopefully good things, you know, that we felt like God was leading us in a direction. Um, and, and it's actually perfect because what we're talking about this weekend in the message is the fact that our actions have consequences. And when my actions are good actions, you know, you like to reap good consequences. But when my actions are wrong, or more specifically, when our actions are what the Bible calls sin, there's also consequences. The Bible says that you'll reap what you sow. Now, I wasn't planning on coming up with a great illustration for that, but as life just so happened, it did anyways. Uh, This past week, I'm in Traverse City, which is usually against my will, especially downtown Traverse City. No offense to Traverse City, but it's where the bougie people are, and I'm definitively now, after 20 years, a redneck, right? Uh, Don't always dress like it, um, because my wife loves me. But I'm downtown Traverse City, And uh, so I got to look for parking, which is a hassle. I can parallel park. I'd rather not, okay? I already took driver's training. I don't want to ever do that again if I don't have to. Um, But a space opened up, and I'm a little bit late for the appointment. And and so I I pull into the space, and it's, you know, I got it right the first time, and I'm feeling good. And then I was, oh, I don't have coins. Uh, But they have the new meters, and, and so I can put my card in. And I actually uh, paid it forward. I'm like, I'm only gonna be here about an hour and a half. I'm gonna pay for three. So that little green light's gonna stay on for whoever comes after me, right? Go to the appointment, come back out. And sometimes your best actions, your best intentions, you try to be good, right? Why is this <laughs> under the wiper blade? What, what, what? It's a ticket. I pull the ticket and I'm like indignant, right? And I'm looking at the meter. The meter's green. Not only is the meter green, but I've blessed the next person with 37 free minutes. So I start opening the thing and I pull it out. And that's when I read and I look at this little meter and then I follow the pole the rest of the way up. Handicap spot. Oh, yeah, I know, you're thinking he took a handicapped spot. It cost me 100 bucks. (laughs) Actions have consequences. And in, in fact, when we talk about sin, there's sins that are called sins of commission. That means sins you do on purpose. You know what God's law is, but you do it anyways. You lie cheat, steal, commit adultery, show rage, hurt somebody. I do that on purpose. And then there's sins of omission. And those are just as bad. 
The Bible commands us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So when I'm not 100% loving towards God or to my neighbor or to the citizens of Traverse City, and I didn't mean to, those are sins I left out. Those are omission, and there's consequences to those too. And I was thinking about, uh, you know, I was like, okay, is that a sin of commission? I did it, but I didn't mean to, so that's really a sin of omission, but not really. So I just think this sin was a sin of dumb mission. Actions have consequences. And so this has what, everything to do with what we're talking about this weekend in our study in 1 Kings. So if you have a Bible or a flat screen, if you turn there with us, we're in 1 Kings chapter 11. If you're new or you're visiting, uh, this, this series, it comes to an Old Testament book and it's history and it's thick. But don't worry, Jesus is on every page of the Bible, right? So we're gonna look at some obscure names and some people that you may not even be super familiar with, but there's a direct application for us. If I were to fill in some more things, is the king of Israel at this time, his name is Solomon. The Bible says he's the wisest man that ever lived. He was given that wisdom by God. But he's acted like a fool. So what we talked about last weekend is he became the wisest fool to ever live, because even though God had appeared to him twice, he knew God's law, he'd been told multiple times, if you are faithful to me, I will keep my promise to you for generation after generation, that one of your descendants will always sit on my throne. And last week was the horrible, horrible explanation of how Solomon forgot who he was, he forgot what God had told him or chose to ignore it, And he was led away by the temptations of money, sex, and power. And instead of being the husband to one wife, he had 1,000 women, 700 wives, 300 concubines. He sought after power. He made alliances with nations that did not worship the same God. And then the worst thing he could possibly have done is his heart was led away into the worship of idols. And this is God's king. This is God's chosen. But his heart was not fully devoted to God. And so this week, we get to read about all the consequences. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 9. It says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give you one tribe to your son, for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Now, I want to pause right there because some of the most horrible words you could ever read in Scripture about yourself was the very first thing, and that was the Lord was angry. The Lord was angry. Now, it is right and righteous and good that the Lord is angry about sin. And there's a lot of people that don't understand that. 
It's like, why does God care? Why, why should God ever be angry about sin? God has to be angry about sin. If God's not angry about sin, he's not a good God. If he doesn't get angry about sin, he's not a just God. God is perfect. In him, it's all goodness, all love, all the time, and there's perfect justice. And so God is right to be angry with Solomon about his sin. And it says why, because his heart had turned away. And even though God had appeared to him twice, even though he knew God's laws, he knew his commands, he chose idols instead. And I think it's important for us to know that God's angry about sin today. He is. Sin makes God angry. And his anger's not like ours. His anger is always proportionate. God does no evil in his anger, in his righteous anger about sin. But there's also grace and mercy here. And it's subtle, but it's important. You see it in verse 12 and 13. He says, yet, for the sake of David. And so Solomon's gonna face consequences. The first is that the kingdom will be torn away from the house of David. He'd been told multiple times, if you will keep my statutes and commands and remain fully devoted to me. Twice, at least twice, on both the occasions that God appeared to him, if you will keep my commands and my statutes, then this. And now it changes to since this has been your practice and you have not kept my commands and my statutes. He's gonna lose the kingdom. But the mercy and grace is I won't do it in your lifetime. And not only will I not do it in your lifetime, I won't tear all of it. There's 12 tribes in Israel, and you'll see, there's the spoiler alert, the house of David is gonna fall. It's gonna be divided. 11 are gonna go this way, but for the sake of David and the sake of his promise, one will remain. So put a little pin in there, and we'll come back to that. Let's keep going with the story, because there's more consequences for Solomon. Verse 14, it says, And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom. For when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian and came to Paran and took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Tapanes, the queen. And the sister of Tapanes bore him Ganubath, his son, whom Tapanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Ganubath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. Just, just real quick here. Don't name your kid Ganubath. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Ganubath. Well, you try. Whatever. All right. Uh, 21, but when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, what have you lacked with me that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, only let me depart. God also raised up as an adversary to him, Razan, the son of Eliada, 
who had fled from his master, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. So this is God's word, and these are all the consequences from Solomon's sin. And there's gonna be aftershocks, and there's a chain reaction of other people's sins that God is now going to allow. So that whole second part, if you were confused by who is Hadadezer and Hadad, and what does Pharaoh have to do it, and Tapanese, I don't even know if I'm saying that name right, and Ganubath, it's very simply this. It was in those two statements when it said, and God raised up adversaries. And so these were people that had a grudge against the house of David. The first one was a very small child when Solomon's father David had won a battle against Edom. But there was a horrible sin that happened there. And the horrible sin was of the commander of Israel's army, Joab. After the battle, he proceeded to kill every male, whether they were a combatant or not. It's not what God had commanded, but he thought for expediency's sake, he should do it. But he didn't get them all. And a little part of the royal court, along with the crown prince, escaped to Egypt. And so that whole story is just giving us the backstory that God now raised him up. Now, what does that mean when it says God raised up an adversary? Because it's a little bit frightening here. The the, the word that's used here is adversary in the Hebrew is Satan, is Satan. Now we know about Satan that his plan is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his plan since the beginning of time, since the Garden of Eden, since he was thrown out of heaven, his plan is to steal, kill, and destroy. And if there's anything that that is loud and clear through the Bible is that this adversary is after you and is after me and is after us. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy from your marriage, from your future, from your present. Anything that he can do. He wants to divide people, divide relationships. This is where racism and hatred and adultery and all manner of sins come from is from the adversary that's always working to do that. And the Bible teaches that it's only by God's sovereign grace that he holds him back. And so when it says, as part of the consequences for Solomon, is that God raised up adversaries, remember, God cannot do evil. So he's using human understanding in the word raised up to say, God now allowed those who already hated Israel to do what they came to do. And it doesn't tell us how, he just says that Hadad was the one. And that after living in exile for a season, when he heard that David was dead and Joab was dead, now that he comes back, God allows this guy to afflict Solomon and his kingdom. So what are the consequences so far of not having a heart fully devoted to God? He says, I'm gonna tear the kingdom away from you. This is the fall of the house. This will not be an unbroken line of kings. 
Now there's gonna be division. That's the first one. Second, he's gonna allow this guy to afflict you, to attack your kingdom. And it doesn't articulate all the ways that he does that, but that's Hadad. And not only Hadad, but this raisin guy. He's gonna, he's gonna raise him up as well. And there's some irony in there. I don't know if you caught it. That Hadad was exiled in Egypt and then came back Sounds like a dude named Moses. Or that Raisin found a group of outlaws and became an outlaw king in Damascus. You know who else did that? Solomon's own father, David, was an outlaw king before the death of Saul. And all these are are righteous consequences for a guy that knew better The wisest man to ever live is now the wisest fool led away by his lust, led away by his desire for more. Thought he could get away with it. And this isn't just a a rant about the sins of the world. These are the sins of the church. These are the sins of the sons and daughters of the Christian ghetto. It's always the same thing. Money, sex, and power. Those are the things that divide our attention. And we face the consequences. You see, sin is always an attack on God. So whether you meant to, or you didn't mean to, or you were too dumb enough to see there was a handicapped spot, there's consequences. And sin is always an attack on God. So God is perfect, perfectly good, perfect love. His law is perfect. And any time we don't nail it perfectly, any time you don't hit the bullseye, one definition of sin is that it's missing the mark. And so the reason that I say that is because that just sounds outrageous. We live in a culture where good is good enough. I mean, some people will pursue excellence a little bit more, some a little bit less. But if you're generally in the vicinity, you know, then, well, I'm a good person. Not with God. That's how fallen we are. And at our church, we try to remind people of that and embrace that, that none of us are perfect, especially not this bro. Anytime you miss the mark, you don't nail the bullseye, or you're playing cornhole. Hey, at least I, you know, got it on. No, missing the mark is sin. And sin is always an attack on God. You say, why is it an attack? Because of his perfection. And when I do it on purpose, and I know his commands, I'm defying his law, and I'm defying him. And when I'm defying him and defying his law, I'm despising his character and his nature. So I'm not trying to get all philosophical here. I'm trying to remind us of how bad sin is. It's literally you and I Shaking our fist in the face of God. This is what it says in Romans. If you flip over to Romans 1, and I won't read it all to you in the interest of time, but I'll just give you a little taste. Paul writes it this way in Romans 1, verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God, which by the way, if I was ever in a heavy metal band, that's the band name. Wrath of God, right? 
But it's legit. I'm not making light of it. It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then he goes on to say that just creation itself is proof that there's a God. It always blows my mind that people can walk around or drive around any part of creation, but especially northern Michigan, and go, oh, this all just magically banged here. It just kind of boom, you know, it just something came from nothing. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Just by looking at creation, you know that there's a God. The fact that we have a conscience is proof for the existence of God. And so what Paul says is it's because we ignore God that this wrath is coming. It says in verse 21, although we knew God, we don't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but we have become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts are darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Remind you of anyone? Who's the wisest fool to ever live? Solomon. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, it says in verse 25. And instead of worshiping the creator, we worship creation. Now there's a lot of people that says, no, 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 I don't worship creation. Yes, we do. We worship creation when we follow our heart. We worship creation when we follow our feelings. We worship creation when we say, well, that's good for religious people, but you know, I'm smarter, I'm mis-. No, you're worshiping science, you're worshiping whatever you feel like doing. You've said, you know what, I don't need God, I'm gonna be my own God. All sin is an attack on God, and God is righteous in his anger. Now, I'm so grateful that God doesn't respond the way I get angry, right? One of the hardest things about growing older is when all of your uh, family, I mean, these people that you love, your children, you know, your wife, they remind you of how much when when you get frustrated, you're just like your dad, you know? When I get exasperated, when I get frustrated, Well, the way we get angry isn't the way God gets angry. God's anger is proportionate, and it's always right. And for us, we need to understand that sin is no small thing, and whether you meant to, or you didn't mean to, or I didn't know, all of it is an attack on God. It's despising his character. It's defying him. And this is why. The reason why is that sinning against God hurts me. Now just go there with me for a second. God is righteous and perfect, but he's also perfect love. Scripture says, while we were yet sinners, he died for us, speaking of Jesus. And so he loves us perfectly. So number one reason that he's angry about our sin and he's angry with Solomon is because sinning against God hurts me. It causes shame, it causes guilt, it causes fear. It hurts the relationship that we have with God and ultimately sin causes our death. And so yes, sinning against God is an attack on God but you can't really hurt God because you can't add anything to God, you can't take anything away from God. Now you can add to me, <laughs> I've seen me do it, and, and, and you can take away from me, and I'm trying, but we can't do that with God. 
So it might be hard to understand, but when I defy God, when I despise his character and I attack him by sinning, I'm hurting myself first because I'm separated in that relationship from him. And shame and guilt are for real. You know, the longer I've been a pastor, one of the things that I realize in talking with people, talking with people in this church, it doesn't matter what campus, we know what sin is. We know what sin is. That's not the real issue. But as I talk to people, it's overwhelming how many of us live under a cloud of guilt and shame. And that's not my intention today, just to make people feel guilty or feel ashamed. But that is a consequence of sin. I wonder how Solomon felt when he heard that God was angry. He's the anointed king. He's a chosen king. God's angry with you. I wonder if he shook in his boots. And then when he heard about the consequences, the guilt and the shame, I don't know how much of a mercy it was that God said, for the sake of David, I'm not gonna do it to you. I'm gonna do it to your kid. Any parent worth anything would take a bullet for their child. I would rather take the consequence than my kid. So yeah, it was a mercy, but all that's heavy. The crown prince, guess what? You're gonna lose the kingdom because of me and because of the sins of Joab and these are the consequences. Sinning against God hurts me. It brings separation. In Ephesians 4, it says when we sin against God, our heart just lusts for more and more sin. And if the Bible is true, and I believe it is, when we sin against God, one of the ways that it hurts us is in order to discipline us, God will allow adversaries. He did it to Solomon, why wouldn't he do it to John? If he's gotta get my attention, he'll let me fall down and skin my knee because he's a good God. Now there's something critical here. When it says, or when I write, sinning against God hurts me, I wanna make one thing clear. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. All of us deserve to be eternally separated from God. If you're a Christian, you've chosen to ask Christ into your life for his forgiveness and in faith have trusted what he did on the cross to pay for your sin. Now you might still have to endure some consequences but at least I'm forgiven and I'm in a relationship with Jesus. So there's two groups of people that are here. There's, there are people here and in Manistee and in Cadillac who aren't Christians that are under a death sentence, according to the Bible. And so the consequences of your sin is eternal separation from God. The Bible calls it hell. The vast majority of us are probably Christians, but there's also consequences for our sin. And this sin Sinning against God hurts me. How does it do that? I thought Jesus paid for my sin. Yes, he pays for my sin, but he'll no longer punish you for your sin. In fact, I would go so far as to say God can never punish a Christian who has been forgiven, who has trusted Christ and what he did on the cross. God can never punish a Christian for his or her sins. If God punishes us for our sins as a Christian, that means what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough. Now he will discipline us for our sins. See how he still gets you? 
But discipline is different than punishment. When I sin against my wife, thankfully she doesn't divorce me. But there are consequences. And it's for my good. When my children sin against me, and they never do. Never, they're all perfect, right? They don't stop becoming my children. But there is discipline. So sinning against God, this attack on God, serves to hurt me. But sinning against God hurts others. See, there's a chain reaction to sin. No sin is committed in a vacuum. No sin is committed in isolation. There's always aftershocks. And Solomon's gonna feel the aftershocks. He's gonna know that, you know what? I blew it and now the kingdom is blown apart. It'll happen after I die, but I was the one. And he has to live in that fallout. When we sin, the same thing happens. You offend somebody, well, you've made an enemy. You hurt your spouse, well, now you gotta repair that because your sin is gonna end up hurting others. I never meant to hurt anyone else, but I got disciplined, did I not? Our sin always hurts other people. Especially our secret sins. Our secret sins. The one that you think you're getting away with right now. The one that, oh, it doesn't hurt anybody else, just I know about it, or just me and this person. No, those hurt too. And I would say especially those hurt other people. Because when you're in that secret sin, the guilt and the shame and the fear become a darker cloud. And that means that the people around you don't clearly see the Christ in you, that you're a lesser version of yourself, that you're not perfectly loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're not loving your neighbor as you could or as you should. And it becomes a vicious cycle. We feel more guilty and more shameful, so we're less likely to give ourselves away. We're less likely to forgive. We're less likely to speak love and joy and life into people because our relationship with God is damaged, and so that ends up damaging everyone else around us. The sin of omission. I'm tired of talking about sin. There's gotta be some good news in here somewhere. Well, there is. Only Jesus can save us from sin. Only Jesus can save us from sin. Now, don't check out if you're a Christian. It's like, oh yeah, I know, that's why I got saved and baptized and I'm a Christian, so I'm good. Jesus can save us from our sin facing judgment someday, but he also saves us from our sin right now. Now, if you're thinking, where is Jesus in the passage? I'm glad you asked. In verse 13, that little bit of mercy and grace that I said we'd come back to. He says, however, to Solomon, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Why is that significant? That's where Jesus shows up. You see, God had made a promise to David. He had restated the promise to Solomon that one day there will come a son, a king, the king of kings, whose kingdom will never end. He'll sit on the throne forever. 
The promised savior, the promised Messiah. He's coming from your line. Solomon blew it. I'm gonna tear the kingdom away from you. But for the sake of David, AKA for the sake of my word and the sake of the promise I made to him, I'll reserve one tribe for your kids. He couldn't take any more than that and have any tribes. 11 tribes are gonna be gone in the divided kingdom, but one, one tribe, Solomon's son will sit on that throne and his son and his son and his son. Are you with me? And his son and his son. And eventually, a son of Solomon, a son of David, the son of a promise would be born. Do you know what that tribe is called? The tribe of Judah. And do you know who that king is called? Jesus. The son of Mary steps unto Joseph. And only he can save us from our sin. Acts chapter four, it says that there's no other name by which we can be saved. If you're sitting here this weekend and you're like, man, this guy talks a whole lot about sin, never going back there because I feel really bad about myself. Good, but just hear me out. There's hope. If you know Jesus, you can know forgiveness. He can set us free from guilt and shame and fear and separation. You can have life, as Jesus said, life that's life to the full by being connected with Jesus in relationship, knowing that you won't live forever separated, knowing that yes, you're still gonna make a mistake and you're still gonna sin, you're still gonna get the ticket, you're still gonna blow it, but that there's forgiveness and that's why Christ died. You see, a lot of our sin is a result of the sin that other people have committed against us. Have you noticed that? That it's easier to sin once someone sinned against you like we sin in our reactions, do we not? Don't look at me like that. I know I'm not the only one. You guys in all your perfection are like, I don't know what you're talking about, John. I just live with a little bubble halo around me. Liar. When someone sins against me, then I start sinning more. But when I begin to understand that Christ died not just for my sins, but for the sins that have been committed against me, both commission and omission, and dumb mission. I just made that up. It's my own little theology. He died for all of those. But he also died so that I can have a relationship with him now. He says over in the book of John, I, th I feel like we've quoted this multiple times these last weeks. In John 14, verse 15, right after the Last Supper, Jesus taught this. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You say, well, well how does that help us? How does that save me from my sin? See, the problem with sin is the more I focus on trying not to sin, the more I realize I fall down all the time. Have you noticed that before? It's like when someone tells you, don't think about purple elephants. Stop thinking about purple elephants. Stop it. And you're like, I can't, you keep saying it, so I'm thinking about it, right? But when my focus turns towards loving Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, who took the punishment that I don't have to, that chose to take on the sins of the world, 
As the Bible says, he was crushed. God saw fit to crush him for everything I've done wrong and everything that you've done wrong and everything that they've done wrong. When I choose to love him, when I choose to serve him, when I choose to trust him, when I choose to worship him, the more I love Jesus, the less I'm apt to sin. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. That's not an if then, like a, yeah, if, if you love me, you wouldn't be so mean the way we talk to one another. He's saying, no, love me more, you'll sin less, and there's less consequences. Isn't that a good deal? But he goes even further. Because he died, because he rose, because he lives, and he ascended, and he sat at the right hand of the throne of the Father, he sends his spirit to live in me, to help, encourage, guide, counsel, convict, strengthen. That means the same power that, ra- that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. And that's staggering. And that power just doesn't come to the spiritually mature. It doesn't come like two or three years after becoming a Christian when you learn the secret handshake. No, that's Scientology, okay? Which is bogus, right? The Bible teaches the moment you are saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you because only Jesus can save us from our sins. Only Jesus, that's our only hope. I love when a message lands on Jesus, don't you? And I know we're in First Kings and I know some people are still like, Hadadezer, really? Well, just don't name your kid that, okay? But trust me, he's on every page. His justice, his goodness, his perfection, and his righteous anger about our sin. But there's also his love and his mercy and his grace. And even though Solomon now, as we continue through the story, he's gonna continue to live through the fallout. We'll see the wages of his sin and how it not only hurt him, it's gonna hurt all of Israel because that's what sin does. But that's why Jesus came, to pay for those sins. And so for you and I, I don't know where you're at, but I'm gonna shotgun it all over the place. If you're not a Christian, I beg you to consider trusting Christ for the very first time. There's no secret prayer. There's no certain way to do it. Best prayer I've ever heard is simply Jesus save me. God, if you're for real and your son is Jesus and that's the only way that I can have life, Jesus, will you save me? And if you'd pray that today, That'd be a win, even if we've bored everybody else to death. But for the vast majority of us, we're living in the fallout and the aftershock and in the consequences of the mistakes that we've made on purpose, on accident, and on the sins that people have committed against us. Well, there's freedom there too. It starts with you. It starts by turning from sin. It's called confession. It's called repentance. When I turn from my sin and instead I turn to God. It doesn't mean all the consequences will go away. But now I can accept them. Because at least I don't have the shame and the guilt and the fear. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna live in some of the consequences of my actions, you know? I mean, my wife and I, our best parenting advice is, guess what? You can be the best parent in the world. You're gonna damage your kids. They're gonna end up in therapy. I just hope I'm not around for when they do because I don't wanna have to pay for it. None of us are perfect is what I'm trying to say. But you know what? 
without the shame and the guilt and the fear, when I can be in right relationship with my heavenly Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, I can accept the areas that I fail because I know that I'm forgiven. And I can have a right relationship with my wife and a right relationship with my children and a right relationship with people around me because I know that I don't deserve this forgiveness, but it's been given to me. Jesus has saved me from my sin. And as I love him more, as I walk with him, he promises that we'll have life and we'll have it to the full. And he promises us help. So would you bow your heads with me? We're gonna, we're gonna sing, the, 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 the bands are gonna come out at all three locations and, and, and we're gonna continue to worship him. But before we get there, would you just take a moment and maybe talk to God, whether you're a Christian or not, and say, just something to the effect of, God, what are you saying to me? What's the one thing that I was meant to hear today? And maybe along with that, if you just ask him, and, and, and God, what do you want me to do about it? God, I praise you for being a God of love, a merciful, patient, gracious God. God, I also praise you for being just and perfect. God, forgive us for our sin, for inviting your wrath, your righteous anger by our actions, our words, our attitudes. God, I ask that your spirit would draw anyone here who doesn't know you to maybe for the first time recognize you as God, cross from death to life, and find this new freedom, which is only found in worship and honor and obedience to you. God, I ask for those of us that call ourselves Christians that we would repent of sin, that we would turn away. God, that where there are consequences that are natural consequences, we would learn to accept them as your discipline and your grace because they're for our good. God, I pray that you would help us to say yes to you in whatever, wherever, however your voice is speaking to us this day. God, you're so good. So I thank you again for your word. I thank you most of all for your son Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.